Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Alexi White. This is the third episode in our occasional series, Loud Reads, where we interview the authors of some of our favorite recent books about Canadian politics and public policy. If you haven't heard our prior episodes, you can go back and download our interviews with Donald Savoy and David Mosscrop at any time. Whether you've read the books or not, we hope you find these conversations interesting and perhaps you'll decide to pick up a copy for yourself while you're cooped up at home. On today's pod, I'm delighted to be joined by Shirley Tillotson, Professor Emerita in the Department of History at Dalhousie University, here to discuss her most recent book, Give and Take, The Citizen Taxpayer and the Rise of Canadian Democracy, which won the 2019 Governor General's History Award for Scholarly Research. She's authored a number of books on public policy history in Canada, including Contributing Citizens, Modern Charitable Fundraising, and the Making of the Welfare State, and The Public at Play, Gender and the Politics of Recreation in Post-War Ontario. Professor Tillotson, welcome to the pod. Hi, Alexi. I'm pleased to be here. We're really pleased to have you. My, I guess my personal fascination with your latest book, uh, Give and Take, comes from the fact that it brings together two areas of personal interest, democratic reform and tax policy, which are very rarely connected in uh, public policy debates today. So it, it was very, very great to read your book. And I think it's probably hard for our uh, listeners who haven't read it to believe that you managed to tell an engaging story about the development of democracy in Canada using the lens of tax policy from the First World War through to 1970. But as you note uh, in the introduction, the history of taxation requires social and cultural history. So maybe let's start there. Can you can you develop that idea a bit for us and uh, tell us uh, why you wrote the book and what you were trying to add to our collective understanding of Canadian history? I didn't start out my scholarly career thinking, I'm going to be a tax historian. I'm really, in some ways, <laughs> every child wants to grow up and be a tax historian. No, you know, but I am, I would say, more generally a historian of the welfare state, a historian that's interested in how the links between state and society have changed over time. You know, in the 1980s, when I was in grad school, I was that was a big moment, the kind of Thatcher-Reagan years where uh, there was a full-out assault on uh, the notion that a state was a constructive and, and positive thing. And I kind of, you know, wondered if these people had any good reasons for their view, which hadn't been the one I'd grown up with, or whether there was something in the history of the development of the welfare state that could help me understand why in the 80s this backlash against it was happening. So closer into why I ended up writing about tax, you know, you mentioned the Charities book. In the course of writing that book, which was about essentially the origins of the United Way, I was grappling with the notion that charity had utterly failed and had been replaced by the successful welfare state. And that turned out really not to be right, that charity had modernized and had they'd really become militant advocates of tax-funded social assistance. Mm -hmm. Um, So you don't have that kind of easy opposition between the people who were for the welfare state and the people who were for private charity. You don't have that in the 50s and the 60s. So that made me think, wow, you know, these people are working with ideas about social obligation and fair contribution I think this looks a lot like a tax culture, a culture of contribution. But let's look at what Canadian tax culture is like and see if it's similar. And then I realized that there was no history of Canadian tax culture and someone had to write it. 
That was me. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. Going back to the the social and cultural history piece of it, I mean, tax policy history to most people probably sounds like a series of you know of government documents. Your book is much more uh, social and cultural history. Yeah. So what the bridge was from the charity to the tax thing is that group loyalties and uh, social identities play a big role in the kind of political mobilizations and to some extent just the uh, willingness to comply that uh, swirl around tax policy and tax administration. And not only is that about the sort of social dimensions of movement organizations and class formation and rural versus urban organization, but there's also a variety of intellectual, ethical, religious traditions that both charitable fundraisers and I would argue certainly before 1945, tax administrators really relied on these kind of ideas of obligation, of solidarity, of duty, of freedom, individuality. All of these are cultural matters and not merely given in stone. You don't have to study any history for very long to, to recognize that even such foundational political con- uh, concepts such as self-interest uh, vary across time and among cultures. Yeah, absolutely. So you, so you use the term, uh, the hyphenated term, citizen taxpayer, quite frequently in the book, and of course, including in the title of the book. Many people see uh, the term citizen and the term taxpayer as opposing. I mean, for myself, I think citizen suggests a broader set of rights and responsibilities, and taxpayer is a much more narrow kind of transactional uh, relationship with government uh, and with the rest of society. So given your experience writing the book, how has your view of these terms evolved and why? what does it signify that you so often merge them together this way? I certainly would have thought walking around in the 1980s, 90s, 2000s, 2018s that uh, uh, citizen and taxpayer were, were opposites. But I changed my mind about that in the course of researching and writing the book. Your way of describing the citizen taxpayer opposition is actually not bad. The one I really dislike is the notion that citizens are virtuous and altruistic and taxpayers are selfish and morally bankrupt. Uh, I think that's wrong. Right. Uh, I do think there's something in your broad views of interest versus narrow views of interest that is closer to an accurate conception. But what I'm doing with that hyphen is expressing something that I I figured out quite late in the process, and I'm not sure it even comes out clearly enough in the book. And that is that tax is a counterweight to the desire that most of us have to live in a private world. Tax really sort of brings people to citizenship. If they're just pursuing their self-interest, they nonetheless find themselves forced to bargain, uh, to negotiate, and by and large, they can't just walk away from the public sphere. You know, you know politics has its origin in many ways as a way of managing tax bargaining. So it brings people to politics. It brings people to citizenship. And so that's why I use the term. There's a great uh, portion at the end of the book where, where you go into this uh, in detail. And there's a, a, a line, you say, better that people fulminate loudly about taxes and make themselves heard than that they pour their anger into quiet avoidance and evasion. So I think that, that gets to your your idea that the idea of a taxpayer may be more narrow, but it, it does spur people to action and to debate and to participation. And that that had such a, a, an important impact in the, the evolution of democracy, even if it came from a place of perhaps relative self-interest uh, compared to the idealistic view of democracy, it still did create the democracy we have today in very important ways. Yes, I think so. 
So moving to the history of tax policy itself, um, you described there being a, a, quote, standard narrative of Anglo-American tax history, end quote. Um, but you say in the book that you consider the true story to perhaps be uh, sadder than people realize, which is interesting, uh, and that it's more about a fear of change and at times this idea of narrow self-interest that actually held us back. So before we get into sort of the detailed history of uh, of the different times in, in, in taxation in Canada, what do you think is missing from the macro tax history narrative that we that we tell ourselves? I think for Canadians, it's important to understand a big difference between Canada and the United States is that we've had a federal sales tax since 1920. It has been quietly in the background generating revenues that at key moments have supported public spending on services. The reason it's important is that European welfare states, social democratic welfare states, rest on a, on a very substantial revenue base of uh, VAT, a value-added tax which the GST is. American tax politics is obsessed with income tax because that's been hugely central to their federal politics, their federal revenue politics. So that's just one example. We'll probably talk about more of the ways where the kind of story we tell about our welfare state ends up being more American and more about the thin kind of welfare state that is funded on income taxes and payroll deductions and not about the more abundant and abundantly funded social democratic welfare states of the European tradition. And in terms of the, does that make you sad? <laughs> <laughs> the triumphalist story that the, of the welfare state and the income tax that are uh, merged together understates how every game was contested and how many battles the opponents of the welfare state actually won. So it's not like there was this golden age of consensus in the 50s and 60s from which we have tragically declined. It's been a struggle all the way, and the struggle continues. So diving a bit deeper, starting with the early history of income taxation in Canada, so going back to sort of the First World War, the federal income tax is first introduced during World War I, and the effort there is to raise money not so much for the war, but to pay the interest on the war bonds. And so the the income tax, the federal income tax at the time, raises only a very small proportion of total federal revenues. It's previously existed sporadically in some municipalities, but it's far from the norm at the time. And so you note in the book that the resistance at at first to a federal income tax was just as regional as it was political. And then when the war is over, Canada's fiscal policies in the 1920s you refer to as, uh, quote, uh, years of awkward adolescence rather than a confident stride into maturity. So tell us more about this sort of early period of income taxation in Canada. Um, and who was actually paying the federal income tax? What were the major debates of that era? And what does that tell us about where Canada was as a country during during that period of, of its history? Thank you for helping propagate the, my main claim in the World War I chapter that income tax was aimed at paying the interest on the war debt. And in that sense, of course, Anyone with any understanding of public finance knew it was going to be around for a while because those war debts weren't going to be paid off right away. But there were people who thought it was too easily evaded. And that's what's kind of immature about the tax structure is there really wasn't an enforcement capacity backing the federal income tax. So it was easy to evade. And uh, lots of people thought, you know, more sales tax, more consumption taxes would generate a better revenue that was less evadable. 
are probably deceiving themselves about people's ability to evade uh, consumption taxes. And certainly there was a big smuggling scandal in the mid-20s. But there was nonetheless pushback from both those people who thought the income tax was unfair because it wasn't enforceable and the concentration of wealthy Anglophone Quebecers whose government, the government of the province of Quebec, resisted this vigorously as an infringement on constitutional division of powers. So both of those struggles were going on in the 20s. They both probably have an underlying, underlying economic element, but they acquire a cultural element. And fighting for the income tax, fighting for its preservation, was the organized farmers. Now, farmers today are not especially cheerful income tax No, no I was going to say. But they are great enthusiasts of what they call a graduated income tax, starting in the 19-teens, because so much of the federal revenue is from a trade tax that they don't like, that they feel reasonably enough obliged to come up with an alternative account of where federal tax revenue would come from, and it is graduated income tax that they see as the route towards low-tariff, free-trade liberalism. So that fight goes on. You know, in, in Newfoundland, there's a similar kind of fight, and Newfoundland actually does abolish its war income tax in, in the mid-20s. But Canada, Canada keeps its, but in, an, in a badly enforced and less and less broadly-based form. It's an urban, middle-class man, probably married who's the main income tax payer. payer. It's not those, the tiny uh, elite living on investment uh, income who's the majority of the federal income taxpayers. But, you know, their role is not especially important in the revenue. It remains the sales tax and the customs tax. It's central in the revenue. And the income tax just equals up a little bit the tax burden from the general mass of consumers to a small group of relatively prosperous people. Yeah, and, and the the impact of of the other thing that never goes away is how much of uh, revenue policy is um, based on the debt markets and the power of the people who own Canada's debt. That was so interesting to me, and I learned so much. But it's super important in understanding how consent to income taxation was one. As you know, from having read the book, in part because the war bonds of 1917 and 18 provided a tax shelter for uh, investors in the 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. So in the midst of the Second World War, uh, income taxes are expanded and modernized substantially. And there's a, uh, you start to get glimpses of this more coherent tax and transfer system for the first time. You also have hundreds of thousands of Canadians who become income taxpayers. So it's no longer just that sort of male, urban, relatively wealthy group. And at the same time, women are taking on more paid employment, and this has tax implications for families, which uh, creates a lot of uh, political interest in the tax as well. Uh, so you note in this period that tax history is often told much more in a technocratic way. But your research shows, I think, a lot more convincingly that public perception and reaction was fundamental to how the government introduced and made made strides in tax policy during this this era. So, you know, for example, uh, quote, the fiscal policymakers began to see that making a connection between taxes on small incomes and the development of a newly social state would be necessary if they were to persuade working class Canadians to be compliant taxpayers and voluntary savers, end quote. So how did the King government at the time actually try to sell this new narrative to people, uh, to big business, to organize labor? And what was the response in that in that period of our history? Right. So, you know, uh, like others, I do think of this politics and policy development during World War II as 
largely successful. But I just want to underscore, the, again, the kind of the friction and the struggle involved. I think both uh, exceptional effort in political communications, responding to the exceptional demands being made, and I also point out that there were real policy concessions sought and granted in the process of negotiating this new tax regime. I hope I explain those in a reasonably interesting way in the book, but perhaps the only one that's readily grasped is that to get married women to work, they allowed uh, their husbands still to keep the married tax status. And so uh, the wife could add her wages without the husband losing the uh, tax discount from being married. So that kind of thing was the sort of concession that was made. And what I love and what seems like a real contrast to the present, again, something I wish I'd emphasize more in the book, I see no evidence that the government having made these concessions was then mocked for having climbed down or walked back their tax measures. You know, the liberals won at the ballot box in 45 and 49 and 53. So I think that they did have some considerable success in convincing the majority of the electorate that uh, they were being uh, responsible and competent. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this, maybe this is a good time to talk about, because uh, you mentioned the, the, the impacts and the strike in Quebec. The way that taxes are are felt uh, politically in your book, it's very clear that, uh, and it reinforces a, a political idea that uh, that is that uh, many people are aware of, that it's very important how you design a tax to consider how people are go- going to see it or not see it. Uh, and so we, met, we talked about tariffs earlier. We talked about sales taxes. A lot of these are hidden taxes, and Canada relied very heavily on those for a long, long time. And it is interesting to see how there's an example in your book uh, when they first started deducting income tax from everyone's paycheck um, and and people actually started having a refund at the end of the year, that that was positive in some ways because people looked forward to a refund and, it, and, and people wanted to file their taxes earlier. But there was also this huge outcry, you, have, you, know, our, you know, editorials in the Globe and Mail saying that the, the government is, uh, you know, violating people's basic rights by collecting too much tax from them and then having to give them a refund afterwards. And it was just completely uh, beyond the pale for so many people. It's, it, it just reinforced the, 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 that sort of interesting human behavioral aspect of taxation that uh, comes through and, and how difficult it was over time for the government to move to a much more visible tax structure that, that is much more efficient and makes, makes a lot more sense, but um, politically uh, was a hard slog for many, many years. The principle that you're referring to, the loss aversion as a problem for tax administration yeah, I mean, it's clear that that reform you're mentioning in 1952, where the broad mass of taxpayers had been expected during the war and for the first few years afterwards to pay their small debts by writing a check or going to the local tax office and putting down cash, that that expectation had led to a whole bunch of small tax debts going unpaid. And that really was not the kind of relationship between government and citizen that the liberals wanted to see. They didn't want to spend big resources or incur the political irritation of uh, hunting down people who owed 10 bucks. So the, the remedy was to take a little more from each paycheck and then return it as a refund. And that uh, really was a kind of turning point in terms of tax administration for quieting a working class wage earner uh, tax resistance that had been aroused during the war. 
Uh, so in 1945, um, you, you talk about in the book, there were about 425,000 Canadians making under $1,000. So it was not a lot of money um, at, you know, at the time um, uh, per year. And they're contributing as a group just uh, just under 3% of total individual income tax revenue. But it was important to the government that they pay even a small symbolic amount. Uh, and this idea you show in the book, this goes back uh, this idea that everyone should pay a little bit of income tax goes back to uh, sort of an elite conception of tax fairness and, and had been employed in other parts of Canada, uh, most notably the Jones tax in British Columbia. Uh, this is an interesting example to me because it's a, an example of one of the f- earlier examples in the book of income taxes being used not to raise revenue, but to sort of have a moralizing or more of a paternalistic purpose. So I'm interested uh, on that subject, just in the 1940s, this really comes to the fore across Canada, but how did this idea evolve over the full span of the 60 years that you cover in the book? The notion that the poor should contribute so that they will be aware of the cost of the state has a 19th century component, and people really should... uh, have a look at Elspeth Heman's book, Tax Order and Good Government, where she anatomizes very well this sort of worry that the poor will vote the property out of the pockets of, of the rich. Uh, you know, 19th century uh, taxation in this country was just dreadful. You know, there was a kind of taxing poverty to support property, a kind of reverse Robin Hood structure to 19th century taxation, which Heman describes really well. And that's part of what's still circulating in the 20s and 30s, and that takes the form of this tiny tax in British Columbia, 1% of wage income that collects, you know, 69 cents from individual taxpayers. But it's that tiny uh, contribution is understood to serve a social purpose to, as I call it, show them the price. And in the 50s, the turn of phrase that becomes very popular, and you still hear it today, you know, that the politicians are just bribing you with your own money, that all of these programs are things that uh, you could buy yourself, I guess, uh, with your own money. Certainly in the 1950s, uh, any union member worth her salt would have said that she is happy to pay and uh, she pays for a variety of taxes, not just the income tax, that the idea that you don't know that you're paying for this by paying your taxes is really a bit, as you suggest, condescending. As, as you know, as condescending as it is, there, there. I, I think from the book there were some benefits to democracy from uh, including large swaths of the population in the tax. In that it, it did, it did force the government to to have to think about a lot more people's lives and the impacts the taxation was having on their lives. And you mentioned there's a line you have in the in the book in this chapter. The government, for the first time, had to bring the voice of ordinary tax grumblers and not just the well-soaked rich into the cabinet chamber. So is that, I mean, is that at least a silver lining of this this concept? Oh, absolutely. Tax consciousness has two sides. As I said, you know, that sense of being a taxpayer does focus your attention on what good public spending is. And there is a socially responsible and entirely reasonable critique of waste in public spending, which is partly animated by having a broad taxpayer base where everyone's contributing, everyone then has a kind of interest in saying, no, you know, actually, I don't like the way you're spending the money. 
So moving on to the 1950s, uh, what we see today as a tax industry really starts to emerge. And you document in the book um, that the use of accountants and lawyers becomes much more mainstream. There's a new interest in tax planning and uh, avoidance, uh, not, not evasion, avoidance. And Canadians are more engaged in tax policy than ever as a result of this. So the government is taking a heavier hand at the time in collection. They're increasing enforcement fines. For the first time, it seems that real jail time is imposed in limited circumstances. Uh, and so you you say that uh, while the tax authority developed its ability to catch evaders, it also trained Canadians to be tax avoiders. So can you tell us more about this idea and the sort of the, the cat and mouse nature of, of tax avoidance and tax evasion, how that changed over the 20th century? Because earlier on uh, in the 20th century, you talk a lot about how the, the government really couldn't enforce tax and it really had to inspire people to pay taxes. And it was much more a public relations exercise and things sort of changed in the 50s. So what was the what was that impact? Yeah, I think you've described really well the shift. It's, uh, it is a more legalistic relationship where the concept of fairness that's being deployed is one that rests on taxpayer rights, on uh, legally specified procedures. There are mechanisms for easy appeal. And I think, you know, originally I would have said this is an unfortunate turn that damages people's moral instincts. And, you know, the, the Deputy Minister responsible for taxation at the time, Fraser Elliott, certainly thought that that was so. But I have come to appreciate that knowing your rights is very important, that the right to avoid is probably a good thing, given the really very serious weight of coercive power that a tax authority has. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating, just the, the change in just a couple of decades um, to go back a little bit to, to the the Great Depression. Um, you have a number of interesting stories about R.B. Bennett in the book. Um, so there's one where, as prime minister, he um, he bristles at the suggestion that he would himself avoid taxes because he was quite wealthy. Um, he goes so far as to say that he took pleasure in paying his income tax. And then in the 50s, you have this very, very substantive shift to where uh, it, it's no longer about the honor of paying paying taxes. It's it, it's almost like it's a duty of the taxpayer to take advantage of every avoidance opportunity they can, and that there's the sense of the tax taxes being engineered for more than just revenue purposes, but also for social purposes starts to pop up. So it's like if the government wants me to do X thing so I can pay less taxes, then I should do X thing and I should pay as little taxes as possible. And that's actually that actually is is you know the part of being a good citizen is is avoiding taxes to some extent in the 50s. It's just an interesting change. I think uh, some people might consider the sorts of incentives built into income taxation as an unfortunate exercise in social engineering. It is a kind of background mechanism to reward direct behavior that in a quiet way is very consequential for organizing even family life, not just economic life. There's one other R.B. Bennett uh, note that I just loved, where you you note that in you know before the 40s, basically there were like four investigators looking at income tax evasion in Ottawa, and R.B. Bennett wants to throw the book at tax evaders, but then they bring him a list of uh, high-profile tax evaders, 
uh, or avoiders. Um, and uh, he basically says, whoa, wait a second. I, if we prosecute these people, um, it's going to shake confidence in the financial leadership of our country. Uh, and they just can't do that at the time because um, if other people believe that rich people aren't paying taxes, they're not going to pay the taxes themselves. And, and they're just re- they relied so much for so many years on just this fiction that everyone was in it together. <laughs> it's so interesting. Personal income tax does really have a kind of chronic legitimacy problem uh, where it may not be possible to have enough transparency to reassure all of the electorate that everyone is carrying their fair share. We need to, you know, we need to. So in the 30s, they just lied about it. <laughs> that. You know, one of the things, along with the uh, World War One income tax not being promised as temporary, that I really think I've achieved here is that I think I found ground zero for the notion that Canadians were naturally cheerful taxpayers. It's the public relations work that is done instead of enforcement in the 1930s, when the Americans are going after bad uh, tax avoiders in very dramatic ways, and FDR is giving big speeches about, you know, we will chase them down, we will punish them. In Canada, our tax authorities are saying, no, everyone's doing fine. You know, taxpayers are, uh, not income taxpayers, a rich man, he's carrying his burden in a patriotic and decent way. And that view, which you then combine with World War II, education and public relations about how we'll all join together and carry this burden because we want to win the war. There's really a sustained 20-year public relations campaign to persuade people that the tax system is working. And that did good in the sense of generating a kind of tax morale that you don't see quite to the same extent in the United States. But as democracy, it's kind of dubious. So skipping ahead to the 60s, um, the Carter Commission is perhaps the first real organized opportunity for Canadians to have an open public debate about taxation, where there's a, you know, a real forum that's created purposely for that purpose. Uh, but you note the, that, um, quote, when Finance Minister Benson invited the public to step up as citizens and weigh in on the tax reform proposals of 1969, proposals calculated to benefit on balance the majority of taxpayers, he was a bit taken aback by the volume of fear and anger that he heard in the response, end quote. So can you tell us a bit about the accepted narrative of the Carter Commission uh, and its impacts on tax policy in Canada? It's, it's a, a pivotal moment in tax policy. Uh, and what you found in your research that sort of adds to this story. Most of the accounts of the Carter and later the white paper Benson uh, reforms were written by people who were participants in tax reform in the 70s, and some of them uh, supervised by people who were participants in in the actual Carter and Benson reform moments. So their story tends to be filled with a kind of tragic sense of this was a brilliant piece of social science work that got destroyed by politics. And I might even go so far to say that there's a kind of culture in the 70s on the left of that regards compromise as just another way old people have to excuse unexcusable evil. <laughs> so, you know, if you don't see compromise as really a desirable feature of political processes, then what happens through that process really only looks like 
decline and failure and corruption. And, you know, some of that's true. There was no question that there was uh, big money with particular interests that advanced and defended their uh, position uh, in ways that it was hard for people just doing ordinary social mobilization to counter. But I guess I thought that what needed to be said and what I saw as a historian who knew from reading works like uh, Jim Struthers' book, The Limits of Affluence, History of Welfare in Ontario from 1920 to 1970, you know, because I knew how vigorous right-wing populism was in the 1950s and 60s, because I knew how successful big capital like insurance firms had been in uh, resisting welfare state programs like the contributory pensions, I really thought it was very improbable that merely the force of some good social science would carry the day against a body of opinion that wasn't only the rich against the rest, but which actually included some pretty substantial popular right-wing opinion, including the creditist uh, movement in Quebec, which played a pivotal role in the early 60s politics, so and which was very anti-tax. So I thought that what I was seeing in the conflicts around the Carter Commission report and the Benson White Paper was a process of politics, not technocracy, but the complicated struggles uh, in which not only, you know, grubby self-interest, but also loyalties and identities, things like, you know, I, I, I came to appreciate that being a small business owner isn't just a, an often difficult economic position. But in the 1950s and 60s, when chain stores were coming in, you know, local small businesses who, you know, finance the little league team, you know, the hardware stores, the, the gas stations, the uh, women's clothing stores, the drug stores, all of those kinds of small businesses knew that they were about to be steamrollered. And their anger wasn't entirely about just more dollars or fewer dollars in their pocket. It was also because they had a view of what being a business person in a community meant. And they could see it being lost, and they were afraid that the new tax regime would disadvantage them in the struggle against the coming restructuring of, of uh, the economic world. So I wish that more of the Carter and Benson uh, recommendations had entered into law, but the taxation of capital gains, even at partial inclusion, was huge, was really important. I think probably all the struggle was worth it just to get that. A good deal of education was achieved in the process. And, you know, unfortunately, some of it in a way that uh, mobilized some very narrow taxpayer bodies like the National Citizens Coalition, Canadian Federation for Independent Business, both come out of that moment. But, you know, we also raised tax awareness and brought tax into politics on the left as well. There, there, were, there was... They were cruising for a bruising, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the left and the right. It was going to happen. That's right. I mean, to, to some extent, I think it, it's long past time that we have another one of these conversations about taxation in Canada. I would love to see uh, another kind of commission like this and a chance for society to have a, a debate about this because we just seem to 
churn with the same tired talking points right now on taxation. And it would be nice to, even if it wasn't a panacea, to, to make take some more real big steps in uh, uh, toward a, a more, I would like to see a more progressive tax and transfer system um, and some new ideas uh, injected into it. So maybe maybe soon we'll have some political leadership on the topic. Who knows? Maybe Maybe a citizen's assembly or something like that should be tried this time. I don't know. I've now publicly argued in one place and something's going to come out in another place, argued that, you know, a persistent gradualism in reform really is more likely to produce something like an approximate fairness. And it's never going to be perfect. The ideal of a, a permanent tax piece based on a fair system is a chimera that will not happen. Uh, so, uh, but maybe, you know, maybe I am too despairing and, well, not despairing, but uh, too conservative, not in the ideological sense, but just in the process sense and thinking about what tax review could accomplish. But really two things would change my mind. One would be if I thought that the we had anything like a handle on regulating toxic, corrupt world of social media. Right now, truth is an endangered species and trying to do tax review. I mean, it's bad enough in the 60s. So I'd like to see that. And I guess COVID pandemic has begun to move me a little bit towards thinking that the other condition might be uh, met soon. And that is, you know, tax reform happens out of crisis, when there is a huge problem that needs to be solved and a solution that's available, but it's been a little bit too much for people to take, but that now is necessary and that might actually solve problems that were existing before in whatever system, the tax system. Uh, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about vulnerable groups in Canadian society because your book does a great job of um, of going into some of the evolution of tax policy with respect to, for instance, Indigenous peoples uh, on and off reserve, uh, which you refer to as uh, probably the most enduring and fraught question of race and taxation in Canada. Um, and similarly, you talk about head taxes and their use in controlling the movement of people in response to xenophobic attitudes, mostly, um, and poll taxes that were levied widely uh, on economically and socially marginalized men, mostly until the 1950s. So you say in the book that tax policy is no different from other public policy. It's neither uniquely evil in its power nor particularly exempt from being used in larger, nasty or nice cultural projects. Um, but what does the history that you found add to the, the broader sense of sort of the, the evolution and the history of marginalized groups in Canada? So my research in this area really comes from one of the fundamental questions that has driven my entire career as a historian, which is how relationships of oppression or inequality are produced and reproduced, even sometimes in uh, conditions of apparent legal equality. This question brought me to tax because tax is one of those things that works quietly in the background to reproduce inequality. It can be through elements of the black letter law, or can be uh, through the way the tax lands in the relationships of inequality in ordinary daily life. And sometimes, and this is something that I really emphasize in the book, tax produces oppressive relations because of the ways it's administered. And in particular, I'd say one thing I would pull out of this is that if there's an element of discretion in the way a tax is administered, it is ripe for use by racist people or for racist purposes 
and so you see this in the history of customs enforcement at places like Aquasasne. You see it uh, in the uh, enforcement of poll taxes around the black minority communities at Maritimes. There's a question of that kind of dis- discretion and accepting documentation or not around the family uh, deductions of Chinese Canadians in the 40s. So you really kind of don't want discretionary uh, features in tax administration because that is at least one place where things go badly wrong for people who aren't respected within the cultures, the majority cultures that they live in. So maybe just to finish things off today, um, your book relies on a variety of really interesting primary sources to understand the evolving tax policy debate uh, and everything that tells us about society. And we've we've talked about that a little bit. You've raised some 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 examples, but just to go through some of it, I mean, you you quote from letters to the Department of Finance, you quote from legal cases, newspapers, records from various other departments that you often wouldn't even think would be relating to taxation, such as the Department of Indian Affairs, for example. So I wanted to ask you specifically about the letters in particular, because many of our listeners uh, have worked in or do work in government um, and would be familiar with the grueling world that is ministerial correspondence. Uh, and, and one of the interesting things I found in the book was that correspondence like this seems to receive much less attention today and perhaps over time than it did in the past. So, for example, you document one assistant deputy minister in the Department of Finance uh, who wrote a 1,000-word response to a single letter because he believed that the recipient could be persuaded by reason and evidence. <laughs> and I just, I mean, the idea that an assistant deputy minister today would would answer a piece of correspondence directly uh, and, and would put that much time and effort into it is... Uh, just not something that, that happens anymore. It just doesn't in government. Um, so considering you read through thousands of pieces of correspondence spanning decades of history, how did that correspondence change? Uh, and are there insights there too about democracy and the relationship between government and individual citizens? Yeah, so uh, I have had a couple of opportunities to talk to either groups of civil servants or de- uh, individual decision makers, some fairly senior about the problems of their work as policymakers and as political actors in the realm of, of tax. And, and one of the struggles certainly is how to communicate in a way that shares expertise democratically, that calls people to engage, knowing that the actual economics and accountancy and law is sometimes forbiddingly difficult. How do you do that? What What's required? And I do see some changes over time in the way that that struggle's been grappled with. I'd say in the 20s and 30s that the kinds of correspondence I saw certainly directed at the federal government was pretty much representative of that kind of small group of men with business background and experience who you know, they expected to be able to speak as yeah, equals to members of the Department of Finance and, and Ministry. In the 40s, the kind of the crisis of the war tax really bought this torrent of uh, of correspondence in, and it, some of it is so interesting and touching from a kind of social history point of view. People list every item in their household budget and then say, "You tell me where I'm going to find the money to pay tax." 
but uh, but you know the the effort that they made in and the, the the economists and the lawyers employed in the Department of Finance in the 40s and Ilsley himself I, you know really was unprecedented and was inspired by what was undoubtedly Clifford Clark the finance minister uh, sorry the deputy minister his commitment to uh, making sure that tax policy was communicated to the public and I do think I see a little bit of a decline. The simple scale of correspondence, certainly in the moments of the Benson White Paper, uh, it's impossible to handle that as individually one-off letters. And so you do see an increase in the kind of formulaic letters, but the ones that are compiled out of stock paragraphs rather than the ones that are just acknowledgements. The other phenomenon which really explodes in the 60s and grows in the 70s is from the part of the letter writers was is these mass campaigns based on coupons clipped out of newspapers. I really think that the National Citizens Coalition pioneered that, but it's something that a whole bunch of advocacy groups use through the 70s and the 80s, something I don't cover in the book, but I've covered when teaching. So that orchestration of interest uh, groups um, kind of prefiguring of the internet petition really takes off from the 70s on, and I think probably helped to contribute to a, a more soul-destroying feature of responding to correspondence from the public. Yeah. As, as someone who has, has had to edit many letters uh, from ministers to responding to citizens, it is, um, it is difficult to, to truly grapple with the issues that are raised um, just because of the volume and, um, and the default that governments slip into so easily um, is one of, of these sort of form responses that it, it, it borders on disrespectful at a certain point. And it's, it's, it's very hard to, to know how to fix that for the reasons that you've laid out. I mean, I do think that it's uh, perceived as disrespect, and that's very corrosive. It's, it is part of the problem of our communications environment. But the only thing I could even imagine as a solution in relationship to ministerial correspondence is whether by lottery or some other more rational method to at least, and maybe this does happen, to at least answer some letters in in a deeper and fuller way, I guess I do often end up calling both decision makers, politicians, uh, and civil servants to understand the incredible importance of their role as communicators, communicators of expertise, communicators of, of our social world, of the fact that, as I said about tax right at the beginning, you know, yeah, sure, you've got your own self-interest, but this is a bargain. Not everyone gets 100% of what they want. So let's negotiate. Let's work this through. And in that spirit, that's how the book ended up being called Give and Take. Well, that's uh, probably a great place to end it. Um, a great summary of, of the book and, um, and a fantastic dive into both tax policy and the change and evolution of Canadian democracy. So, uh, Professor Tillson, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, once again, the book is Give and Take, The Citizen Taxpayer and the Rise of Canadian Democracy. I hope everyone picks up a copy. Thanks for the interesting conversation, Alexi. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. 
You know, tax policy is one of those things that like hovers underneath the surface and tends to only pop up when we have like an election around and a politician wants to throw a boutique credit in the window uh, to curry some votes. But at this macro a level uh, and related to our politics uh, was truly fascinating. So I want to thank Shirley Tillotson for both writing the book and coming on our podcast. Holy crap, what an amazing conversation. Join us on Friday. We'll be talking about the news as usual. Ontario Loud is Sam Andry, Alexi White, Green Tower Kapoor, and myself. I'm Chris Martin. Aisha Anwar and Harman Modi are our volunteers. Don't know why I stopped there. I see this every week. They're amazing. We love them. See you on Friday.